Well, last week we looked at chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, when Paul and Silvanus and Timothy began their discussion of the return of the Lord. And this extends through verse 11 of chapter 5. And we're going to break this up into three different teachings. So this is kind of like a three-part series, but it's still verse by verse. And this is all part of what we're calling the instructional portion of 1 Thessalonians, which began at the beginning of chapter 4. And the instruction that he gave last week was that the church should not grieve over those who died as if they had no hope. He was telling them, they're not going to miss the return of the Lord. You're going to see them again. Don't be distraught to the point of, of excessive grief. And we took this as an opportunity to discuss the rapture. Not just from this passage, but we've been giving an overview of what that doctrine is. And I think this is one of the best opportunities you're going to get in the Bible to talk about it. And to us, it's a very important doctrine. It always makes me laugh because a lot of people that want to say that it really doesn't matter what you believe about the rapture. And those are usually people that don't believe in the rapture. So <laughs> this kind of makes me laugh. But our previous study last week, if you were here, you know it was very doctrinal. It was a meat and potatoes Bible study. And I know that it was, and I listened to it again. I wish I could have been a little more clear, but that's all right. And so I'm going to take a minute to remind you of what we learned last week, and especially if you weren't here, this will help frame today's message. And that way I don't have to go back and repeat myself as we move into weeks two and three. So the Bible prophesies that Jesus Christ is coming back. Every Christian, more or less, agrees on that. That he will return to judge the nations, that he will establish his kingdom here on the earth, which Revelation says will be a thousand years, so we call it the millennium, the millennial kingdom. And prior to that, the Bible foretells what we call the great tribulation, that there will be a seven-year period where evil is allowed to run rampant throughout the world. God will pour out his wrath before Jesus returns to establish that kingdom. So you have the millennium, you have the tribulation. I'm going to use those words a lot. That's what those two things are. And there are several passages in this Bible, namely this one that we're going to be in, John 14, the first three verses, and 1 Corinthians 15, that reveal what Paul calls twice a mystery. That those who are alive and dead in Christ Jesus will be caught up to be with the Lord forever. And in the last chapter, he talked about it being in the sky, in the clouds. Jesus said in John 14, I will take you to my Father's house where I'm preparing those many rooms, those many mansions for you. So we have the millennium, the kingdom, when Jesus returns. We have the seven years of great tribulation that precede that. And we also have the mystery, which is the rapture. This is being caught up. The Greek word, we looked at this last time, is harpazo. It means to seize or to snatch or to carry away. It's the word that was used when God snatched Philip up and carried him from the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert to the next town that he was going to have him minister to. It reminds us of Elijah who was caught up in the chariots of fire. We call this the rapture. It comes from the Latin word raptura. And we believe that this rapture, this catching up, will take place prior to that seven-year tribulation and, of course, therefore, prior to the thousand-year millennium. So this is called the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture of the church. So we often abbreviate that to pre-trib, pre-mill. 
And there are other points of view. There's the post-trib that believes it will be after the tribulation. There are those who don't believe that the rapture is any different from the second coming of Christ, but we, of course, do. And I'm trying throughout these three weeks not just to look at what this passage says, but to include a, an overview of what the entirety of the Bible teaches about this. So I'm going to remind us of, I, I gave what I more or less counted to five reasons why we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. First of all, passages like the ones I just mentioned speak of Jesus taking the church to be home with him, which is different from the second coming when he returns to the earth. So the descriptions of those two events seem to be different. Second, we know that the church and the nation of Israel are separate entities in Scripture. The church has not replaced Israel. They are separate. So it makes sense that the church age would end with the removal of the church. Third, we looked at Daniel's 70 weeks. This is in Daniel chapter 9. We could spend a lot of time going over that. It's very dense, but it predicts 490 years of Israel's history. Only seven years remain. And that's been delayed because of the rejection of Jesus, and the final seven will be the tribulation. So the, it makes sense that there would be a rapture in between there. Fourth, we ask the question, who is going to populate the kingdom? Because the Lord isn't going to let sinners into his kingdom, and if every believer has been glorified prior to entering the kingdom, then how are we going to have what we find in Isaiah that the people living in the kingdom will be reproducing and eating and living and dying? That doesn't make a lot of sense. And fifth, we asked why Paul would point to the rapture as a point of comfort and hope if it was going to be preceded by seven years of the worst tribulation, the worst persecution, and the worst judgment the world has ever seen. Like I said, meat and potatoes last week. <laughs> I'm not going to get into these things again. Go back and check them out. Listen to it on the website. And we're going to get into some meat and potatoes this week too. It will probably be less dense than it was last week, but these are important doctrines. I hope you'll familiarize yourself with these things, because as I'm going to discuss today, not every preacher who gets into end times prophecy is standing on solid biblical ground with all the things that they say. We must insist, especially when we're talking about the future, that we are standing solidly on the B-I-B-L-E when we make claims from God's pulpit. Amen? We're going to look at some more important arguments for the pre-trib rapture today, but we're also going to discuss, and I think this is the primary thing I want to get across today, what does and does not constitute a sign of the coming of the Lord. This year in particular, there has been so much unwarranted speculation and proclamation about what's about to happen that has nothing to do with what the Bible says, that brings our theological position into contempt and that people don't want to address what the Word says, they want to address what this wacky online teacher has said. And even people who do not know Christ, they think about us, and they, they see some of the wild things people say, and they're like, is that what Christians are into? If there's a teaching in this three-part series that's going to frustrate you, it's probably this one. I might come across as a killjoy today. But that's why we've got to discuss it. It's way too easy to get excited about something and look for a Bible verse that matches up with it. And then you make a mistake. And now you've got a flimsy conclusion built on another flimsy conclusion, built on another flimsy conclusion, but you talk about it as if it's as true as the death and resurrection of Jesus. We can't do that. And as we get to the end, we're also going to be reminded about the, the moral effect that the doctrine of the rapture ought to have on our lives, which is something very often neglected. 
So a little something for everybody today. Sound doctrine, contemporary issues, and practical morality. So let's, let's get into this now. Chapter 5, and we'll begin with these first three verses. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Okay, so the last thing that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy explained was the rapture of the church. And in this passage, they don't give a lot of clues as to how it fits into an eschatological system. So the first question you might ask upon hearing that we're going to be caught up is, when? When's that going to happen? And that's the question that Paul answers in this chapter. They're writing about the times and the seasons. And he says, there's no need for us to tell you anything because you're already fully aware. We've seen that a lot in this book, haven't we? That he says, you already know this. You're already aware of this, but I'm just writing to remind you. Now, what they know is that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That is, it will be a surprise. It will be sudden. He compares it to labor pains. That once it starts, it's going to happen. <laughs> that it's going to be sudden. It's going to be surprising. Now we want to back up a little bit here. That he says precisely that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So we have to ask ourselves this question. What is the day of the Lord? We see this phrase in the Bible from start to finish. It's used in varying ways, but there is a, a sound definition that we can look at. God's intervention into the affairs of men for judgment and for blessing. That's the day of the Lord. And it's all leading to the ultimate day when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. So you could say the little d day of the Lord is building to the capital D day of the Lord. And this is a sermon all on its own. <laughs> but any time in the Bible where God intervenes, that's considered and described as the day of the Lord for judgment or for blessing typically. Usually for judgment, but there's blessing in there too. The prophets use this phrase a lot. They'll say the day of the Lord or they'll say that day or in that day. The day of God in the New Testament, they'll use the phrase the day of Christ. And there are those that want to split hairs on the meanings of those things. I don't think that's, that's right. When you see it throughout the Bible, they're talking about momentous times of change in history. So in that sense, there were many days of the Lord in the Old Testament. The destruction of the northern kingdom in Samaria was called the day of the Lord. The Babylonian captivity was called the day of the Lord. The destruction of Tyre, the day of the Lord, in that day. But all of those prefigure and point to that great day of the Lord. The end of history, as we just described, the tribulation and the millennium. And as we see in the Old Testament, and also here, I think, that the day of the Lord is not necessarily meaning a 24-hour period. It's similar to how you'll say, well, back in my day, you're not talking about a specific date on the calendar. You're talking about my days, plural, but we use the phrase day. That's similar to how it's used here in the Bible, that the day of the Lord, the day when God finally steps in. And each one of those smaller days of the Lord usually has predictions that are very specific to what was going to happen in that instance. But they also have things that go beyond that and make you go, well, that didn't happen. <laughs> 
But we know that this event happened, and, and those things, as the New Testament writers make clear, especially the book of Revelation, those things will be fulfilled on the ultimate day of the Lord. Let me read you one representative description here. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. When's the last time you read something out of the book of Zephaniah? <laughs> but let's read this. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Wow. <laughs> That's quite a description, isn't it? Maybe you're familiar with the, uh, the Latin chant, the Gregorian chant. That's day of wrath. It's, it's running through that passage describing the day that's coming. And if you read through Amos chapter 2, there's actually a phrase where he goes, why do you want the day of the Lord? <laughs> he said, it's a day of destruction and darkness. Why, why are you looking for that? So that day, as Paul describes here, will come like a thief in the night. We believe that that day will be initiated. The first thing will be the rapture. And according to Paul and Jesus and everybody else, that day is going to come suddenly, unexpectedly, and swiftly, and no one knows when it is coming. That's the point being made here. He says, you have no need for us to write to you. It's pointless for me to talk to you about when it will happen because no one knows when the rapture will happen. Let me say that again to make it abundantly clear. No one knows when the rapture will happen. Jesus said in Mark 13, 32 through 33, Jesus said this, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. There's a Trinitarian secret here. Isn't that amazing? Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, right before Jesus' ascension. When they had come together, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know. Now, some people want to get cute and say, well, we don't know the day, but we can know the season. Jesus right there said, not times, not seasons. Matthew 24, Jesus was the first one to use that thief in the night metaphor. 2 Peter 3.10, he also compares the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. Revelation 16.15, Jesus said, I'm coming like a thief. I reference all of these passages, and there are others, to remind you that when we're talking about end times prophecy, there are a lot of things that we don't know. There are a lot of things that we think we know that we're pretty confident about. There are others that we kind of hold loosely. But there are a few fixed facts of prophecy. One of them is that Jesus is coming back. Another is that no one knows or can know when 
the rapture will happen and the day of the Lord begin. No one knows. Do we have that firmly fixed in our minds? Because every so often somebody pops up who says, actually when it says we can't know, it meant we can know. <laughs> this is called the doctrine of imminence. This means there is no intervening sign or event that must take place between now and the rapture. There is nothing that needs to happen before the rapture can happen. It could happen at any moment. In fact, one of the reasons we believe in a pre-trib rapture is because of the doctrine of imminence. The doctrine actually comes first, and it's one of the reasons why we believe that. Because in the Bible, we are given signs of the second coming. In fact, in the book of Revelation and Daniel, we're given a fixed timeline of the second coming. So if you say the rapture comes at the end of that, how can you say that his coming is truly imminent? In fact, the sign that's most commonly given for the day of the Lord, for the second coming of Christ, which we see in Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2, is the Antichrist. You know the second coming is almost here because the Antichrist will commit what's called the abomination of desolation. He'll set up an idol of himself in the temple and command all people to worship him. So are we waiting for that? I'm not waiting for the Antichrist. I'm waiting for Jesus. As you read through the Bible, it's very clear the early church had a joyous expectation of the imminent return of Jesus. We've already looked at some of the reasons for this. In the last chapter and in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's describing the rapture, Paul uses we language as if he expects to be there. Now, if Paul knew that it was going to be at least 2,000 years, would he really have been using the we language? Might have used they language. In Acts chapter 1, I think this is a funny one. They're standing on the Mount of Olives. Jesus ascends to heaven, and it says they stood there gazing into heaven. And God had to send two angels to shoo them away. It says, not yet, guys. Come on. You've got a job to do first. It's as if they expected a quick return. It's what Jesus had told them in John 14. I'm going away, but I'm going to come back and get you. We already saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, you are waiting for his son from heaven. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, it says they were waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 13, they were waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Anytime it talks about what we're waiting for in the New Testament, we're waiting for a joyful, glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him to come and get us. There's no mention of waiting for that terrible day or waiting for the Antichrist which is what you would expect if the rapture doesn't come till the very end. The church was waiting for the Lord Jesus. That was the next thing on the New Testament docket. The next sign, the next event is the rapture of the church. It's ubiquitous in the New Testament. In Revelation 22, three times Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And there's very little warning, if any, in the Bible about how to prepare for the Antichrist. Instead it says, we're waiting for Jesus, and he's going to deliver us. And next week, we'll talk more about escaping the wrath of God, which is very significant, but I'm not going to touch that today. The New Testament talks about an imminent hope. It could happen at any moment. But if you read, as I said, through Revelation, 
If you read through the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, it reveals definite signs on a fixed timeline. In order for both of those things to be true, in order to hold what the Bible reveals that we're waiting for his return at any moment and hold to the fact that we've, we've been revealed the timeline of what's going to happen, we put the imminent thing first. That only seems to make sense to me. According to Daniel and Revelation, when the Antichrist arises, he's going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel and her enemies. And it says when that happens, there will be three and a half years. It's pretty specific. And read through those passages. It, it likes that number a lot. Until the Antichrist defiles the temple. And then it says after that, there will be three and a half more years until Christ returns. That's pretty specific. So why is Paul and these other writers not saying, we're waiting for that Antichrist to make that treaty because then we know it's only seven more years. He says, we're waiting for him to come today. And I say this in all, all kindness. I'm not addressing the person here. I'm addressing the issue. But if you are a, a post-trib Christian, you cannot honestly say you're waiting for Christ unless you lump all those seven years into one thing. You're, you're waiting for the next sign, which is the Antichrist. And I'm not saying that somebody who's post-trib is excited about the coming of the Antichrist. I'm saying doctrinally, you can't say that you have an imminent hope unless you have an imminent hope that there will be seven more years. I don't really understand how that, those two things can, can work together. But we are given the example of eager expectation to see Jesus at any minute. The rapture is imminent. It could happen today. Y'all might not have to listen to me go through this entire thing today. The Lord might just show up and correct all the things I'm getting wrong. There is no intervening sign between now and then. Read it right there in your Bible. It says it will be unexpected. It will be sudden. And when everyone expects peace, the rapture will come. Sometimes you like to say, oh man, things are bad. Jesus must be coming back soon. Actually, it says when they're saying peace and safety, all these things are going to happen. Like those first contractions. You know that the baby's coming. And you know that the longer you wait, the more likely it is that the baby's coming. But when those first contractions come, it's never you're planning that. It's like, okay, well, we'll start at 5 in the morning. That way, by the time we're ready to go, I can be in. And it's not, no, it's like 3 in the morning. Oh, okay, time to go. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. It's going to be sudden and surprising. This is key for doctrinal reasons, as I'm discussing, but also practically. If Jesus could return at any moment, how does that affect how you live? 1 John 2.28, he said, Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Ever hear your dad coming up the steps, and you go and hide somewhere? Said, Maybe it's time for me to make myself scarce. Maybe it's time for me to go for a drive. Mom, do you need any groceries? I'm heading out, because you, you know I should not be caught doing what I'm doing right now. If Jesus could come back any minute... That should affect how you spend any minute. Okay, so I think that's pretty clear. There is no sign between now and the rapture. That is the next sign, is the rapture. So let's go on now, knowing that's firmly established into verses 4 and 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now this is interesting. 
because he just said it's going to surprise everybody. But in verse 4, he says there's no reason for you to be taken by surprise because we're children of the day. Now, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but it does when you think about it for a second. That the day of gloom and darkness, like we read in Zephaniah, the day of the Lord, he says that's not for you. That's for the wicked who are going to be judged, which in itself is another reason why we believe in the pre-trib rapture. Because Paul right here is saying, that's not for you. You don't belong to that day. But is this verse teaching, as some have said, that Christians can know the date of the rapture? Of course not. Because not only does he say it in all those verses I just read, and Paul is smart enough to be consistent with his own statements. He says, it's going to come like a thief. He doesn't then in the next verse say, but guess what? It's not going to be like a thief. He, he knows. He's a smart man. And nowhere in the Bible does it give you any indication of when that will be. It's amazing to me how fanciful some people can get in their ways of determining the date that Jesus told us he didn't even know. In fact, he told us in Acts chapter 1, it's not for you to know. It's kind of like when Paul said, I was taken up to the third heaven and I saw things that it would not be right for me to say to you. And yet somehow we think we're going to figure it out. Absolutely not. What this verse means is that the church will be ready for the rapture. And because we're ready, we will not be surprised by it. We will have been waiting for it. It's like when your plane lands and you know the person's coming to pick you up. You don't quite know when they're coming, but you know they're coming. You don't know they're going to be here at 11.32 and 15 seconds. You know, he'll be here. And sometimes it's longer than you think, but there they come. You're not surprised that they're there, but you couldn't have pinpointed the exact second. It's sort of like at the end of a soccer game. And I'm not much of a soccer fan. <laughs> at the end of a soccer game, I remember watching the World Cup for the first time. And the clock ran out, and they kept going. And I thought that was so bizarre. I'm used to football, where you're managing those last seconds of the game, and you've got your two-minute drill, and you're trying to get out of bounds and all that. But it just kept going. And I'm sitting there watching, and it's like two or three minutes ago. I'm like, why does it keep going? Well, this is what's called stoppage time. The clock will continue to run to account for fouls that took up time, substitutions. They don't stop the clock for those things. So at the end of the game, they give time. And the referee has discretion over when to end the game which is why there have been some accusations in certain instances that the ref is trying to give the team that's losing a chance to come back because maybe he's got money on the game or he hates the country that he's refereeing. <laughs> he has discretion. The end of the game is uncertain, but it's not surprising when it happens. No one's going to go, what, what, it's over? Well, they all knew it was over because there was nothing left between that and the end of the game. It was up to the discretion of the referee. The rapture is very similar. Everything that needs to happen has happened. The clock has run out. And we know that the end is going to come, but we don't know when it's going to come. That's up to the referee. That's up to the Lord. And when that happens, as Paul says here, we don't know when, but we're not going to be surprised because we've been waiting for it and expecting it this whole time. Paul says in 2 Peter 3, verses 11 and 12, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Peter says, you wait for and hasten the day of the Lord by your obedience. 
It will be surprising, but it will not be a surprise if you know your Bible and are living righteously. As we just read, there are no intervening signs to be fulfilled between now and the rapture. The next verse does not give us a mandate to search out that date. It should be obvious to us, and I think it is obvious. We're in stoppage time right now, which is pretty exciting. Now, I've been saying very, very clearly that there is no intervening sign or event that must happen between now and the rapture. But there is a very wide swath of pre-trib teaching, you might even say most of it, that consists of examining the headlines in order to demonstrate that the rapture is near. If we know that there is no intervening sign that must take place, why do we do this? Well, I know why, and I'm going to explain why, even though I don't think it's wise. It depends on a person's interpretation of Matthew 24 and its parallels, which would be Mark 13 and Luke 21. This is what's called the Olivet Discourse. This is when Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives before he went to the cross, after he had just said, not one stone will be left standing on another, and he gave that teaching. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And depending on how you interpret certain verses from Matthew 24, you might become very excited or excitable about the headlines. So you might want to turn there. I'm going to read it, but you might want to turn there. Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14. You've probably heard these before. I'm sure you have. But Jesus had just told the disciples, they say, hey, look at this great temple. Isn't it awesome? And Jesus said, not one of these things is going to be left standing on another. Then verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? That is the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, see that no one leads you astray. It's a nice way to open up this kind of teaching. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We've all heard this passage before. We've all heard wars and rumors of wars. We've all heard earthquakes. We've all heard nation will rise against nation. And every one of you has heard somebody claim at some time or another that this hurricane or that war is a sign that the end is near. It comes from this passage right here. Or maybe you've seen people that try to demonstrate through their book or through their PowerPoint presentation that wars and earthquakes and hurricanes are getting worse because they say that the birth pains, well, birth pains get worse and worse. So we would expect, according to this passage, that the hurricanes and the wars will get worse leading up to the return of the Lord or to the rapture. But the question I want to examine today with a very cold Biblical eye, is that a good use of this passage? First of all, I want to say, the interpretation of that passage is contested. 
And the question is, what time period are these verses describing? What time period is being described? Let's break this down. Now, listen, this is meat and potatoes. Stay with me. This is important because it has a very practical application, okay? So we just read those verses. And the first and most common view is that those verses are referring to the church age between now and the tribulation. That everything I just read is describing the days in which you are living right now. John Walverd, who is a fantastic Bible teacher, he's written some great commentaries, and he's a godly man. I believe he's home with the Lord now. That's the view that he holds. But the second view, which is held by men like Thomas Ice, who I believe is equally eminent as a theologian, equally godly, equally influential and learned and all the rest of it. He believes that these verses are describing the first years of the tribulation, which matches up with the next verse, because the next thing Jesus talks about is the abomination of desolation, which we know happens at the midpoint. So these are the two views here. The church age view, they see, well, he's talking about the gospel, and it is Jesus talking to his disciples, so that's real easy. And it would be real easy to apply these verses. When he says you, he's addressing the church here. That's the church age view. And I would say that's probably the most popular view. The other thing, though, recognizes that the Olivet Discourse has a very strong Jewish and Israelite character. These are the disciples asking Jesus about the destruction of the temple and his second coming. They're asking what's going to happen to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the Jews, God's people. And it also draws parallels between that passage and the first seal judgments you see in the book of Revelation. And if you go through and look at that, it's in Revelation chapter 6, you, you match that up with what we see here, it very well could be describing that. And even folks that believe in, in that first view believe that these things bleed over into the beginning of the tribulation. Now, I myself am, am kind of torn on this one, to be honest with you. But I believe that the second view is the most consistent in the context of the passage. Now, in a few years, I may have changed my mind. But I, I do believe that Jesus there is talking about the tribulation, the beginning. He's talking about the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Because the church age, as we discussed, is, is what you might call a parenthesis in God's plan. Because Israel rejected the Messiah. But I'm not going to dive into all that again. Now, so let's say that the second view is, is correct. If I'm right, if Tommy Ice and all those guys are right, and these verses are describing the tribulation period, then wars and earthquakes in the news have nothing to do with signaling the rapture. Because the wars and rumors of wars and the earthquakes and all that he's talking about are talking about the wars and hurricanes and earthquakes we see in the first chapters of the book of Revelation, if that's correct. Okay? But if I'm wrong, and these verses describe the church age, I still would contest that sensational claims about hurricanes and civil wars are out of order. And let me demonstrate that to you right now. Again, please stay with me. Jesus gives us a remarkable piece of instruction in this passage that always gets overlooked, and we read it. Jesus said in the middle of all that, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, for the sake of argument, if Jesus is describing what happened in the church age, that there will be wars and earthquakes and all that stuff, he tells us not to be alarmed because it's not the time yet. He says later on, these are the beginning of the birth pangs. It's just the beginning. Jesus is 
piece of encouragement and instruction in the middle of that passage is when you see all this stuff, calm down. And this is often blown so far out of proportion. It's like, oh, the beginning of the birth pains. And the way this is interpreted is the rapture is the baby and all the tornadoes and hurricanes and wars are the pains that will build up to the rapture. But I will say that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, and in other places, when it's talking about the birth pangs, it's talking about the tribulation. I mean, you read through Revelation, it's like earthquake, war, earthquake, war, devastation, judgment, stars falling from heaven, the water turned to blood, the grass burning up. Birth pangs, they get worse and worse until the Lord returns. But to then come out and say, the hurricanes and earthquakes are going to get worse and worse and worse, and that's how we know that the rapture is close. And I suppose when you just have hurricanes coming every five minutes, that's how you know the rapture is about to happen. But I hope you see that that's kind of a flimsy house of cards. It's easy to say that every bad thing we see is a sign of the times. I believe that that's an inappropriate interpretation of that passage. But even if that is your interpretation of that passage, I believe it's an inappropriate application because Jesus told us what the application was, which was do not be alarmed because the end is not yet. So rather than looking at the tornadoes and hurricanes and saying, the end is near, what we ought to be saying is, the end is not yet. Because that's what Jesus said. We need to remember that the rapture is already imminent. There's nothing else between now and the rapture. We don't need to see a certain number of wars and earthquakes and famines and plagues in order to say, now the rapture can happen. Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. We're, we're watching. We're waiting. All the things that we just went into. There is no intervening sign. It's going to be like a thief in the night. And not when we see enough hurricanes and earthquakes, but when they say, peace and safety, the end will come upon them. I'm going to go ahead and say this definitively. I find zero biblical ground to identify natural disasters and world political shifts as signs of the coming of Jesus. The next sign is the rapture. And the speculative nature of the claims that come in that vein, I think, confirm me in that position. Every president since John Adams has been called the Antichrist. Every time an empire has fallen or a world leader has risen to power, we've said, ah, this is it. Here it comes. How many times are we going to do that and get it wrong? before we learn what the word tells us. Now listen, let's be clear. There are certain things that cause us to raise our eyebrows. For example, the nation of Israel being reborn in 1948 was a big deal. But let's, let's examine why. Because the Bible very clearly indicates that Israel will exist as a nation during the last seven years because they're going to be making treaties and everything else. So for a long time, Israel was not a nation. Now all of a sudden they are again. And we go, look, this, this thing that the Bible says what's going to happen in the end, has already been set up. Now, that's pretty interesting. Other things like if the Jews were to build their temple, that would raise our eyebrows too. But hear me on this. None of those things must happen before the rapture. They could be undone and it would not hinder Christ's return by one day. If tomorrow Israel was invaded by some nation and driven out of their land again, I would not change my theology. Because the Lord has already told us that Israel will be in their land. 
So to say that this has to be the time, it certainly raises my eyebrows and gets me excited, but I'm not going to come in and hang a flag on it and say, therefore, I know the day, because you don't. These exciting tidbits have been blown up to be markers of the times and the seasons, which Jesus said even he didn't know. For example, let's go ahead and step right on those toes. <laughs> the Antichrist in the book of Revelation is said to establish a worldwide government. And so every libertarian Christian sees every global move, every move to bring nations together as a sign of Satan's power at work. It was the League of Nations back in the day. Oops, no more League of Nations. Now it's the United Nations. No, it's the European Union. And now, okay, well, we don't know what it is. In fact, that government will not be established until after the rapture and when the Antichrist is revealed. So why are you so afraid of that? The Antichrist is going to rise up afterwards. We're going to look at that in depth in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Other times, we have speculative views in Scripture. And listen, sometimes it's okay to gently speculate and say, you know what, it might be this. But you need to not take your might be and build doctrine on it. <laughs> you can build further speculation on it, but you've got to remember it's speculation. Because a lot of times, Christians have grabbed at the headlines for signs that end up being nothing, like Y2K. Well, Jesus said that a thousand years is like a day, and, you know, he said that he was coming back. So 2,000 years is a big deal, and, okay, actually, that was nothing. So all those books and all, the, all that craziness and all the panic had nothing to do with the Bible, did it? Here's another one. People say, well, America's not in the Bible, and America's a world power, so therefore America has to fall before the Antichrist can come. Is that possible? Yes. But I could rattle off ten other possible ways of explaining that. South Korea isn't mentioned in the Bible either. <laughs> neither is China. Neither is Great Britain or Zimbabwe. So why do we think that we have to be accounted for? I'm not even going to dive into my explanation of that because I think it, that's just the kind of thing that it's, it's fun to speculate about. Like, what, what, how would that work, you know? But you don't come in and say, therefore, we're waiting because America's going to get smote, you know? The other one is the mark of the beast. Everybody thinks they know what the mark of the beast is going to be. There, there, I'll, I'll tell you, there was a billboard in Lynchburg, Virginia that said, do not worship on Sunday the mark of the beast. <laughs> Worshiping on Sunday was the mark of the beast. When you read through the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast is not just something that you take. It also goes in tandem with worshiping a golden image of the Antichrist and the number 666. And don't you dare tell me you know what that means, because no, you don't. <laughs> and everything from our social security numbers to credit cards to the COVID-19 vaccine has been called the mark of the beast. And it is inappropriate to do that. Getting people all freaked out as if they're going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. Read through the book of Revelation again. It's either the mark or your head. It's not accidental. And how many times in there is it who took the mark and worshipped his name? Let me reiterate. The only passage in scripture that talks about signs of his coming tells us not to be alarmed. And even that passage is subject to legitimate interpretation. There is no sign that will come before the rapture. The rapture is the sign. Whatever happens in the meantime is not 
entirely relevant to this discussion. Now we can raise our eyebrows because there's a, a list of nations that are described. And when we see them moving into place, you can go, okay, maybe this is the Lord setting stuff up. But the thing is, that's happened over and over again. Turkey's the big one today. Oh, Turkey is gaining power. Turkey used to rule half the world and the Lord didn't come back. So now that they've got a little bit of power that they used to have, say, oh, well, Russia's going to get involved. Even that's debated. But if, if the Lord needed a strong Russia to come back, he just blew his biggest chance throughout the whole 20th century, didn't he? Now, do those things raise their eyebrows? Yeah. The, the other thing that comes up all the time is there have been some who have speculated, and again, speculation, interesting speculation, that the mark of the beast will be some kind of microchip in your skin. You've all heard that one, right? Bible doesn't say that. It says you will need it to buy and to sell. That's what it says. And now we look at that and say, now we're familiar with this sort of thing, and it certainly would be possible to do this. It's an interesting speculation. But to then say, I'm not going to get a chip put in my cat to track it because I might give my cat the mark of the beast <laughs> is ridiculous. The Bible doesn't say. So we build that, and now all of a sudden we're not looking at the Bible. We're looking at AI technology. We're looking at microchip technology, but the Bible never said that. Don't become a conspiracy theorist in Jesus' name. Don't become a headline chaser where everything that happens, and some of you have asked me why I don't do prophecy updates, because not much has changed biblically since the last time we looked at this. And when things move around, we'll, we'll talk about them. And when we go through Daniel, especially in Isaiah, when it mentions specific things, then we'll, we'll look at them and address them. But a lot of times when we, we have a prophecy update scheduled, so we've got to scramble to find something. And we start fitting things to what we want to talk about rather than looking at what's actually going on and what the Bible actually says. I realize a lot of you do not like what I just said. I realize I spoiled a lot of your fun just now. But y'all, we have made such absolute fools of ourselves as a church so many times over. Setting dates calling out signs that were not signs, warning of the mark of the beast, which isn't supposed to happen until three and a half years through the tribulation anyway. You know what has happened because of this? There is a new generation, my generation, that is embarrassed of sound biblical theology and is either keeping quiet about it or looking for something else because they don't want to be tied to all these wacky people. And listen, I don't want to be tied to those wacky people either. They're brothers in Christ. I understand that. But at the same time, what does the Bible say? And listen, the Bible's got plenty to keep you busy without going on Facebook to find stuff. You should only ever speak about prophetic matters with as much biblical certainty as you are given. And by the way, you don't get to rant for three hours about something and then throw in at the end, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus said we could never know. It's like, yeah, but you kind of just demonstrated that you think you do, didn't you? Need I remind you, Christian, as it says here in these verses of Thessalonians, you are not of that terrible day. You are not of the day of terror and darkness. You are the light that shines in the darkness until the Lord's good time. We'll get into this more in a few months, but in 2 Thessalonians, that book was written partly to calm the church down because they were afraid that it had already started. Does that sound familiar? Paul warns them against listening to people that were trying to work them up over this stuff. And he said, guys, there, there's really nothing to notice until the Antichrist comes, and he's not going to come until we're gone. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, talking about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, Paul calls him. 
And you know what is restraining him now. He may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And we will dive in depth into why we interpret it this way. But the restrainer in that passage is the Holy Spirit at work through the church. Restraining Satan. Restraining the rise of the Antichrist. Restraining that one world government. Restraining the abomination of desolation. Through the Holy Spirit's power at work in the church. You are salt and light, Jesus said. And only after that restraint is removed will the Antichrist come. So us chasing down all these things... Paul said, we're not going to see any of that. Now, you might see little antichrists, as John pointed out in 1 John 2 and 2 John 7. He says, there are some people that they kind of prefigure the antichrist by their attitude. And there maybe you could say there are empires that prefigure the antichrist's empire. You could think of Nazi Germany as a clear example of that, right? But they're not the guy, <laughs> And so we need to stay out of the speculation business. It's not mature, Christian. There is no sign that must take place before the rapture. There is no political move that has to happen. There is no technological advance that has to happen. There is no spiritual state the world has to be in. The next move is upward. It's you and me. Sound Bible teaching can be complex and difficult. Identifying political enemies as pawns of Satan, is easy. And a lot of times people get real deep into prophetic stuff because it gives them a Christian excuse to be really involved in politics. We know that we are not of this world. We know that our kingdom is not this kingdom, and we know we ought to stay away from those things. But if we can give ourselves a theological pass to care about these things, it's not just my country, it's the end of the world! This is not easy stuff to dive into, you guys. You've got to do your homework. You've got to study your Bible and y'all reputable teachers. Find reputable, respected teachers of these things. Don't go out. Please promise me you will not go out and Google any of this stuff. Because you will find up the most sensational, the most wild stuff. Rather than, I mean, I'm your pastor. Come to me if you have questions about these things. I might not know the specific answer, but I can sure point you in the direction of a guy who thinks he does. This is one of the reasons we, we go through these things. And I realize that this is less fun and less thrilling because if you don't do this, if you don't take the time and look at what the text actually says, you can embarrass yourself and you can burn yourself out. I've met a lot of people that have become jaded and cynical in their walk with Jesus because they were so obsessed with all this prophetic stuff and they thought that every political election was going to be the rise of the Antichrist and they got burned a thousand times and embarrassed themselves in front of their friends. So now they're like, forget it. I don't want to talk about Jesus anymore. I know people that have walked away from Jesus because of this. We're not going to be surprised because we are aware that we are on stoppage time. Not because... We've seen some headline. We walk every day as if it might be that day. And that leads us into verses 6 and 8. Why do we need to look for a sign to tell us to be ready? We've already been told to be ready. Verses 6 through 8, let's read this here and we'll come to the close. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. These verses are how we know that it's preparation that keeps us from being surprised. We're children of the day, and we live with both eyes open. This is our practical application. A lot of times, bad prophetic teaching leads to unhinged preaching and vicious anger. Why, why are some preachers and theologians and students of the word so angry? I'll tell you why. Because this political move or this technological move is, don't you know that that's bringing about the Antichrist? And we get angry. That's how you know it's bad teaching, because it's got bad fruit. If the day of the Lord is coming, then we're right now living in the night before the dawn. The world is sleeping, the world is drinking, the world is carousing, not realizing that the sun's going to rise and it's going to mean judgment for them. Paul commands us to be awake and sober. Recognize the reality of the coming day. Wake up! It's almost over. And to be sober means you've got to do what needs to be done in preparation for the Lord's coming. Paul says, besides this, you know the time. that The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. Very similar passage to this one. Paul was a preacher. He repeated himself sometimes. Both have references to the armor of God. A little different from what we see in Ephesians 6, but it's the same point. When you know that Jesus is coming, sobers you up. We have no time for frivolous stuff, for sinful living, because this could be the day. What do you want to be caught doing when Jesus returns? You want to be lying? You want to be gluttonous? You want to be being lazy? You want to be looking at pornography when Jesus returns? Wake up, sleeper. Most of us know what we ought to be doing, but the immediacy of the moment, the convenience of now, keeps us from true obedience. What are you waiting for anyway? Yeah, I know, i got to get it together. What are you waiting for? Why not have tomorrow? Make that change today. What if you knew for sure that today was the day? What would you do? What would you do? Think about that in your mind. If you knew that at midnight tonight, Jesus Christ was returning, what would you do? What about this week? If the Lord came and said, this is the last week, Saturday night, I'm coming to get you, how would you live? Or this month? What if you knew that 2021 was the last year? Because let me tell you, it just might be. As we already read in 2 Peter, since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And as you also know, being awake and sober means looking around you to see who does not know that the day of the Lord is coming. Who is asleep around you? And give them that good news that will enable them to escape the imminent wrath. That's the kind of fruit prophetic teaching should bear. Not wild-eyed theories, not scoffing pride, and not anger, but sobriety, holiness, love, Paul says. Because we know the Lord is coming soon, and we need to be ready for him so that we're not surprised. So to sum up today, the rapture is coming and it will precede the seven years of tribulation when the Antichrist will ravage the world. There is nothing standing between the rapture and today. So we're looking to the imminent return of Jesus Christ daily. We do not look to signs or omens to give us indications of the date. 
Because God has already told us, I'm not telling you that. Instead, we let the hope of salvation and the hope of the coming of Jesus to motivate us to open-eyed, godly living. The Lord's coming like a thief in the night, but you know what you can be doing? You can be standing at the door with your bags packed, ready to go. If you receive his word, if you obey his word, because you are the salt and the light by which God is currently restraining evil. When you are gone, the man of lawlessness will arise and Satan will enact his plan. God will stop restraining him. But in the meantime, we've got a job to do. So let's get about it.